Good morning. Good to see you all. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. While you're turning there, uh, we do love sound doctrine here. We do love a good study of theology. We like to think rightly. We like to have good theology. We like to adorn the Gospel with right theology. But we also acknowledge it is adorned by right living. Not just right thinking, but right living. And this is why in Sovereign Grace churches, we embrace seven theological convictions on the one hand. We call them our seven shared values, but also seven shaping virtues. Shared convictions, shared values, shaping virtues. And this is because when the gospel of Jesus Christ is embraced, it produces a culture that's marked by certain qualities. Uh, as we talked about this in, in Sovereign Grace and the leadership of Sovereign Grace, you know, we realize you can have all the right thinking, you can have all the right theology, and still be arrogant. You can have all the right thinking, you can have the right doctrines, but you can still be a jerk. And we don't want a church of jerks. We want a godly church. And so it's not enough to have right thinking, we also must have right character, right living. And so our history and study of the gospel has led us to prize seven particular virtues. We list them as humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, servanthood, and godliness. Seven virtues that are not unique to Sovereign Grace Churches, but seven that are very important to us. Humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, servanthood, and godliness. You may remember back in July, I preached a message on the virtue of encouragement out of Acts 11.23. Barnabas, who saw the grace of, a grace of God and encouraged. And so we talked about wanting to see and celebrate the grace of God in each other's life and encourage one another. Here in another month or so, uh, on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I've asked Merrick to preach on the virtue of Thanksgiving, gratitude, right before Thanksgiving. Imagine that. So that'll help launch us into the holiday with grateful hearts, but also looking at one of these virtues. Another one we will come to later in our study of Matthew in chapter 20, one of the key texts on servanthood. And so we'll be looking at that at the beginning of next year. But today in our passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, we just happen to come across a key passage that deals with humility, which is really the cardinal virtue. Without humility, we will have neither the experience nor the desire for the grace we need to cultivate the other virtues. So we need humility. We need to build a gospel culture here with humility. But to look at it from another angle, we need humility because pride is our greatest enemy. We need humility because pride is our greatest enemy. You can think about it like this. Scripture teaches that God opposes the proud. So that's James 4, 6, or 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, which means pride makes God our enemy. Pride is our greatest enemy because it makes God our enemy, which is why we so desperately need humility. Every day we need it, no days off, we need humility. 
So if you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is The Absolute Necessity of Humility. The Absolute Necessity of Humility. We're studying Matthew 18 and looking at verses 1 through 4. I invite you to follow along as I read this passage. Here's what Holy Scripture says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him, child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. So, in verse 1, we read that the disciples came to Jesus with a question. They wanted to know how greatness is determined in His kingdom. What makes for greatness, Jesus? How do you mark greatness, Jesus? And really, what they're getting at is, Jesus, how do you rank us? How do we rank in your kingdom? What is... Who is great in your kingdom, Jesus? Which one of us is the greatest? That's what they really wanted to know. And this, even though Jesus had just taught them back in chapter 16, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus has been teaching them self-denial, but they are still practicing self-promotion. He's been teaching them about humility, but they're still stuck in pride. They haven't learned the lesson. And sadly, as we continue our study in Matthew, we will find out that they're not going to learn the lesson today either. We're going to have this same or see the same argument come back up again in Matthew chapter 20, arguing who's the greatest. And then Luke tells us, even on the night of the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, they were arguing again over who was the greatest in the kingdom. So this tells us humility is a hard lesson to learn. Humility is hard to learn, and that's kind of encouraging because how many of us have heard sermons about humility or pride, and yet here we are still struggling with it? By the way, did you know you struggle with pride? If you didn't, that's an end of evidence that you do struggle with pride, and so here we all are, equal in our struggle with pride. The reason for this is that pride is an intractable sin. It's very hard to kill. It's very hard to do away with. And so the disciples, they're arguing over who is the greatest. This might have been prompted by the fact that Jesus had just announced to them that he was going to be killed. And so maybe they're thinking, well, when he's gone, who's in charge? When he's gone, which one of us is left in charge? And we can all imagine Peter, as he is so often does, putting himself forward. Sometimes it was better, sometimes worse. He go, hey guys, remember, Jesus did say he will build his church on... Complete the sentence, you know, me, right? You know. And James and John coming along and say, hey, 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 buddy, hey. Yo, we were up on the Mountain Transfiguration too, you know. We were invited into that special circle, so we think we're in the contending as well. And we're going to see them arguing about this in chapter 20, and they get their mom to come and help them. You always know it's bad when your mom is arguing for you. It's like, guys, that's a sure... Never mind. We'll get there in chapter 20. So there's this maybe selfish ambition going on, and 
and jealousy in the midst. We don't know exactly what is happening to uh, make this come about, but what we do know, what really matters, is what Jesus says in response to them. Verses 2 through 4, he says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Verily I say to you, Amen I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a warning against pride, and it's a call for humility. And being the consummate teacher that Jesus is, he uses a visual aid to illustrate his point. He he calls to himself a child. Um, Mark says that it was a child small enough that Jesus was able to take him in his arms. So I'm imagining a, a you know three to five year old that Jesus takes takes in his arms, steps him down in front of all of them, and he says, "You need to be like this." So there's something about little children that Jesus wanted to get into their minds, and that he wants to get into our minds this morning. So this is something we need to see if we want to be humble people. So what is it about little children that Jesus wants us to see? Well, some have said that it's their innocence. But every parent of a toddler is going to say, nah, not that. Can't be that one. Others say, exactly. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. Others say it's a child's lack of concern for status. You know, here are the disciples arguing who's the greatest, and maybe children have a lack of concern for status. But again, what is a child doing when they scream no at you except asserting their status that they think they have? And if you still question that, I would love to encourage you to volunteer for our nursery ministry downstairs and you will see little children vying for status. That's my toy. Well, I don't think it's status. Now, I don't think Jesus is pointing to some kind of virtue in children that we're supposed to discern. I think he is pointing to an objective reality about all kids. It's this. Their position of need. It's their, de- their position of dependence. Little kids need their parents. Little kids need adults. It's not a virtue in them. This is just a fact. This is just a reality. They are dependent upon other people. And little children, though they're not always, but they are generally aware of this. I remember uh, some time ago, we were getting the kids ready for bed one night, and from across the hall, I heard Caleb getting upset about something. Uh, Caleb is a very vocal child. Every emotion he feels, you know about it. And so I hear grunting, I hear anger, I hear upsetness, I hear you know rumbling over in the room like things are getting banged. And so I call out, you know, Caleb, are you okay? And I hear this kind of muffled crying response, no. It's kind of like, no. So I go over to see what's going on, and he is crying on the floor, but his shirt is pulled over his head, and his hands are somehow tangled, and he's stuck. And so I said, Bud, what happened? 
And he said, I can't get out. (laughs) Our kids need us. But listen, it's not their awareness of their need that Jesus is particularly pointing to. It's just that objective reality that they are needy. Jesus is saying to us, you must become like that. He says in verse 2, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... Did you notice that word? Jesus says, unless you turn and become aware of this reality. Guys, if you don't turn and get this, convinced of your own inability, your own need, your own dependence upon God, if you don't get this, you're never going to enter my kingdom. And that sense of need, of inability and dependence, that, he says, is humility. And in my kingdom, those who have that are truly great. It's so interesting to me that Jesus doesn't just throw out the whole idea of greatness. That he doesn't hear them arguing about it and say, really, guys, that's what you're talking about? Like, we have bigger things to talk about in my kingdom. We don't worry about greatness here. You know, we worry about world evangelization or we worry about, you know, godliness. And uh, He doesn't do that, though. He doesn't get rid of greatness altogether. He doesn't even, he doesn't even say, guys, you want to talk about greatness? It's me. And about greatest in the kingdom? Didn't I say I would die and then be raised again to new life? Like, when I'm gone, I'm still the greatest. Like, he doesn't even do that. What he does is, he doesn't get rid of greatness. There's a sense in which he affirms it, because he knows God has put greatness in our hearts. A desire for it, that is. He has put eternity in our hearts. We desire greatness only. Jesus wants us to see the desire for greatness that we have is actually a desire for God's greatness. This sense that we need Him because He is great. So Jesus doesn't throw out the subject of greatness, but He does warn us against pride and then call us to humility. So point number one this morning, we want to look at the problem of pride. The problem of pride that Jesus warns us about. Let's ask the question this morning, what makes pride so singularly repulsive to God? Why does he oppose it? We're told in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5. Why does he oppose it but give grace to the humble? What makes pride particularly offensive to God? What makes it particularly offensive to him is that pride contends with God for supremacy. Pride contends with God for supremacy. Think about it in comparison to other sins. Covetousness. Covetousness is a turning away from God to find satisfaction in things. Impatience. Impatience is turning away from God to find satisfaction in your own swift action or plan of action. Lust. Lust is turning away from God to find satisfaction in sex. Bitterness is turning away from God to find satisfaction in retaliation. But pride... Pride is turning away from God to find satisfaction in self. In me. This is part of what makes pride so heinous to God. It's the proud man who heads up the list of God's seven hated abominations in Proverbs 6. 
When referring to pride, Scripture just uses the strongest language possible. We find words like hate, abomination, detestable. We simply cannot overstate how strongly God opposes and abhors pride. And this is because other sins lead us away from God, but pride attempts to elevate us above God. This is why Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, once wrote, Pride seeks to ungod God. Pride seeks to ungod God. It seeks to elevate you above God, and it does so in all kinds of different ways. And this is the tricky thing about pride. As horrible as it is, it is equally hard to spot. As horrible as pride is, it is equally as hard to spot. Pride is something of a shapeshifter. Jonathan Edwards said, Pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. It's the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. Pride comes in all shapes and sizes. And we're going to look at those different shapes and sizes here in a minute, a few of them, to help us. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, its telltale sign is a preoccupation with yourself. It's a preoccupation with you. Pride is self-orientation. Pride is self-obsession. Pride is an orientation that assumes life revolves around you. So, this is why pride can look like the kind we typically think of, self-exaltation, self-promotion, but it can equally look like, it can equally take the shape of self-degradation and self-demotion when you beat yourself up for your failures. Because at the end of the day, you are still the orientation of your soul. You're still self-oriented, self-obsessed. And the first you're obsessed with your success. You're like Brian Regan's me monster, right? Remember that? It's the me, 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 me. But in your self-degradation, it's the same thing. Me, 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 me. Either way, you're obsessed with you. You are first in your thinking. You are first in importance. You are first in your satisfaction. Not God. It's you. You want to be great. Pride can be hard to spot, but it reveals itself when you oppose just criticism. Pride is easily knocked off balance and thrown into a defensive posture. You can't let people think less of you. You can't let them think that you might be wrong. When some, something rises up inside of you, a kind of indignation that they would find fault with you for that. Sometimes it's that they, that person, that you would find fault with that with me. It's not the criticism. I'm just, I'm bugged that you find fault with that. Finds fault with just criticism. I had this experience earlier this week. Had lunch with Bert, my good friend. We're sharing soul. We're talking about life. And we we're talking about confessing sins. And Bert lovingly pointed out that I, am, I will confess my sins, but it is difficult for me to admit I am wrong. 
And on the outside, I said the humble thing. Yeah, that's true. On the inside, I thought, no, I'm not. Am I? And then the Lord gave me practice of it again last night, talking with Jenny. Talking about something here at the church and ways of leading and thinking about something of growing and doing something better. In it. And as she's talking about it, there's this part of me that's just kind of indignant. Like, why is she criticizing? What? I mean, is she saying I'm a bad leader of this church? Is she saying... Indignant to just criticism. Pride reveals itself when you compare yourself to others. You go into a room of people, here at church, at work, at school, even with your family at home, and it's just a, a compare game. You're comparing yourself to those around you, puffing yourself up because you're smarter, you're funnier. You're better dressed. You're better behaved. Your kids are better behaved. You're healthier. You're more successful. Or going in and doing the opposite. You're not nearly as funny. You're not as smart. You're not as gifted. You're not as successful. It's still you, 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 you. Pride shows itself when you lie to make yourself appear even just a little more impressive than you are. Maybe slight exaggerations about how much time you study the Bible or how often your family does family devotions or how little time you watch TV. Maybe you exaggerate at how well you manage your home or how well a project went at home. And listen, the lies you tell become the lies you live. The lies you tell become the lies you live so that there become parts of your life that you cannot open up to people anymore you can't open up anymore because you've not been letting them in when it started or when it was small. And now it's been going on for so long. Everyone thinks that your marriage is great. How could you possibly let them know that it's actually in shambles? Everybody thinks you're such a great mom. How could they possibly, how, what would they do if they found out how you yelled at your children? Everybody thinks you're an upstanding nice guy. What would they do if they find out how addicted you are to pornography? And so the lies that you tell become the lies that you live, all to save face. Pride also fuels your gossip and your slander. You belittle other people, showcasing their faults so you can feel better about yourself. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is pride. Evaluate your prayer life. Wherever you are not praying, you are showing that you believe that you don't need God. That's a hard pill to swallow. But that's what prayerlessness reveals. That you believe you don't need God. Not really, or you'd be praying. A praying people know they need God, and so they plead for His provision. But when we don't pray, we are like the church in Laodicea from Revelation 3. We're basically saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that we're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Without God, we have nothing. And I just want to take this opportunity to point out, you know, about a year ago or, or so, we started a, a monthly prayer meeting here at the church. And it started off great. We had lots of you coming out, and it was wonderful. And yet, over that time, it's, it's whittled down to just this little core. And I've wondered why. Why are less people coming to pray? And I know many of you, your busy lives, and I don't want to say, you know, well, if you're truly humble, you'll be at the corporate prayer meeting and try to, like, load you with guilt. That's not my goal here. 
But my goal is, my question is, could there be pride keeping you from coming to pray? That you will not make a priority in your schedule that you need to pray. That we need to pray. Fault finding is a form of pride. Fault finding is a form of pride. It's amazing how pride can cause you to filter out the sin you might see in yourself while at the same time causing you to filter out the good you could see in others. Pride is a lens that minimizes your faults and maximizes the faults of other people. Pride is revealed in a harsh spirit. It's pride that causes you to speak of people's sins with impatience, with irritation, with frustration or judgment. Pride looks down and belittles other people's struggles. I experience this as a parent. You know, I can get impatient with my kids' struggles. You know, how many times have I told you? How many times have we talked about this? How many times do we have to go over this? And if I were humble, every time I would be hearing my Father in Heaven say to me, how many times, Jace, have I told you? How many times have we gone over this? How many sermons have you listened to? Mine are a lot more than theirs. But it's pride that just gets frustrated and irritated and impatient. And of course, pride is starved for praise. It's starved for praise. It craves attention and respect. So you you boast about yourself or, or maybe you're someone who's unable to say no because you need to be needed or... Or you just crave success at your job or in your marriage or with your home projects or with your kids because you're really seeking the glory that comes from men and not from God. Friends, it's important for us to realize as we study this text that pride is something we all struggle with. We all want to be great. We all obsess over ourselves, at least in some areas of our life. And the call of Christ is to turn from our pride. This is the word of God to you and me today. We might be able to plug our ears to the rebukes of fellow men, but there is no escaping the word of God in Christ Jesus. He is always opposed to the proud. They are his enemies. But this is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came for self-exalting, self-promoting sinners like you and me. The meek and the lowly Son of God came. Think about this. He came and he died in the place of arrogant mockers. The one who was mocked died for those who mocked him. Consider the irony in our salvation. The one in whom it was all God's delight. The Father's Son in whom he was well pleased. was Suffered as one who was scoffed, mocked, and rejected. Jesus glorified the Father by suffering as if he were one seeking glory from men when he was the last to do such a thing. Jesus was full of grace and truth, yet he suffered as an arrogant liar. Jesus was crushed under the infinite weight of God's fury because he took our place. Jesus was opposed by God. He was made God by God or made God's enemy for our sake. Because we are proud and we have made ourselves God's enemy. So if you find yourself here today convicted of pride, convicted of your contention for greatness with God, the first thing you need to do is turn to Jesus. Humble yourself under your pride. Confess your sin and look to your Savior. Look to the cross. See the irony of your salvation there. That the one who was great became nothing so that he could make you great. 
The wonder of Jesus Christ is what truly humbles the soul. And this is our salvation, that we confess our sin and say, I am the proud one, you are the humble one, and yet you have taken all my pride, and you have given me all your righteousness. In Christ alone is our salvation. Turn to Jesus. There is your Savior. There is all the humility you need. It's in Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. And then being in Him, you can be like Him. He will give you the grace. You will be able to have this mind in you. Which brings us to point number two then this morning, the need for humility. The need for humility. Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, convinced of your inability, convinced of your great need, of your complete dependence, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is highlighting here is the absolute necessity of humility, not just in salvation, where we humble our pride, confess our sins, but also in sanctification. We must stay as dependent children. This is how we grow in his kingdom. We must be humble. But what is humility? What is humility? Well, the word for humble, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, can be translated as lowly. It expresses the idea of being bowed to the ground or being brought down to the dust. We see something of this in Proverbs 29, verse 23. It says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So we see here, paradoxically, pride brings humiliation, but humility, which is called here a lowly spirit, will lift you up in the eyes of others. It will bring you honor. So the essence of humility is a lowly spirit, or as Jesus called it in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, a poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit. Very similar idea. The humble are lowly. And yet, we have to be very careful here. We have to be very careful because there's more to true humility than that. There is such a thing as an unhumble lowliness. Do you know about this? There is such a thing as an unhumble lowliness. The humble are lowly, but there is an unhumble lowliness we have to be careful of. There's a lowliness that is not what the Bible is referring to when it speaks of humility. In our day, we've dressed up this kind of lowliness and we call it low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. The person who lacks confidence and is plagued with insecurity. Feelings of inferiority. That's a real thing. Maybe some of you here think of yourself as having low self-esteem, but it's important we understand that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says it that we are humble, who are the greatest in the kingdom. He's not talking about a disposition of insecurity or, or lack of confidence. It's not a, it's not a quiet person. The humble are lowly, but there is a second element to biblical humility we need to understand. It's not just a downward disposition so that anyone who has a lowliness about them, a quietness in front of other people's, it's not just necessarily they're humble. True humility is a downward predisposition, a lowliness of spirit produced by an upward perception of God. 
an upward perception of who he is, and then in who in light of who he is, who we are in front of him, who we are before him. Now in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Proverbs, a little background to our passage here, this is why there is often a direct connection between humility and the fear of God. The fear of the Lord and humility. For example, again in Proverbs 22 verse 4, we read the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You see the two connected, humility and fear of the Lord. Or again in Proverbs 15 verse 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. So you see here, they're paralleled, fear of the Lord and humility. The two are distinct but inseparable. They are always wed together. The downward disposition of true humility is always linked to the upward disposition of the fear of God. One of the most helpful definitions of the fear of God that I've I've come across is by John Murray. He defines the fear of God this way. He says, it is the all-controlling sense, or that all-controlling awareness of the majesty and the holiness of God and the profound reverence which this apprehension elicits. The fear of the Lord is the all-controlling sense of the majesty of God and holiness of God and the profound reverence which this apprehension elicits. When there is this all-controlling sense, this all-controlling when we are gripped by God's greatness, by His glory, by His moral purity, by His absolute sovereignty, when that is perceived in our soul, there is produced in us a reverence, a respect in all of God, and that is where true humility comes from. This is why Sunday mornings is sometimes the times we feel most humble. Because as we gather and we sing and we praise the Lord together, as we contemplate this Great passages and lyrics of God's awesome glory and His grace to be there for us. And we're just, you are amazing, God. And we come out of ourselves and we hear the, the saints all agreeing in faith around us. And we're just, in our souls, we're saying, yes, 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 this is true. In our souls, we feel like, low, I'm just, I'm, I'm low, I'm bowed before you here, God. And yet in that moment, don't we also feel most alive? It's not like bringing low brings us low in life. It brings us alive. This is where we're supposed to be, dependent upon the greatness of God. When we're gripped by the majesty of God, we realize we're finite, we're dependent. When we behold the holiness of God, we realize we're corrupt and and we live in darkness. As the soul grows upward in the knowledge and the fear of God, we correspondingly grow downward in lowliness of spirit. Kids, maybe I can help illustrate this for you for a minute. I, have you ever, have you ever been up in a tall skyscraper building, like one of the super big ones? I got to go up in the Empire State Building in New York City, so I could see the whole city out from it. It was so cool. I could see the Statue of Liberty way. And in Chicago, I've been up in the Sears Tower, which is even taller. You can see way out over the lake, miles away. Do you know the tallest building in the world is over in Dubai? 
country. It's a city in a country in the Middle East. And it is 2,715 feet tall. How tall is that? Well, if you go downtown in Akron and you find the tallest building in downtown Akron, you can try to imagine it. It's the Huntington Building, the tallest building in town. Well, the tallest building in the world is eight times taller. So huge and tall. But in order for it to go up that high in the air, they have to make a really deep foundation for it. It's got to be really deep to make it strong so that way it doesn't fall over in the wind or anything like that. And so for that tallest building in the world, the foundation is 164 feet deep underground. That's like the size of the Statue of Liberty underground filled with over 110,000 tons of concrete and steel just to hold that thing up and steady. And that's something of what the fear of the Lord and humility is like. As we grow in fear and knowledge of God, we go up in the higher knowledge. We also grow lower in reverence and honor and amazement at Him. And this is what happened to Job, isn't it, parents? You've studied Job's life. Right? He, he faces incredible suffering. And in the face of that horrible suffering and less than helpful counselors, Job begins to question the wisdom of God. He wants an answer. Why did he have to lose his riches and his family and his health? And so he questions God. And at the end of the book, Job gets his answer from God. Do you remember what happens? God shows up in a whirlwind and he begins to ask question after question after question of of Job. He asked Job 77 questions. It was a 77-point sermon, is how I like to think of it. Questions like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He asked Job, have you ever in your days commanded the morning light? Or here's another one, Job. Where does light live? Or where does darkness reside? God has 77 questions like this, all driving at the same point. The answer to Job's question is, Job, I am God and you are not. Which means there are a million, billion, trillion things you don't know that I know. That you can't do that I can do. That you can't understand that I understand. That you aren't aware of that I am aware of. Job, I am God and you are not. And seeing the majesty of God in that, The awesomeness, the hugeness, the power, the knowledge of God. Job replies to them, Oh, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Who am I? Who am I? You see why it's so important that we keep a Godward disposition, a right thinking about God. This is what cultivates true humility. So one application for you here in all of this is I exhort you, study the attributes of God. Study God. If you want to grow in humility, don't think about how you can just do things differently. Study God. Study the fear of the Lord. You can do these things just by, in your regular devotions, just looking for attributes of God that are brought out and stopping and praising Him in those moments, contemplating those things. But you can also get help by taking up a great book there are classics that I would recommend, like A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. 
Very short, very accessible, powerful book, though. J.I. Packer's Knowing God, a classic. Another classic, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Friends, studying God will weaken your pride. The more we are aware of the difference between ourselves and God, the more we will experience and express true humility. But here's the thing. That's all background to what Jesus does in our passage. Because he takes it a step further. Using the picture of a child, Jesus shifts the idea of from fearing God as the Almighty to depending upon Him as the Almighty Father. Something similar, but a little different. Verse 4 again, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the greatest in the kingdom are those the most dependent upon God, most aware of our our inability without Him, most aware that He is all we need. Jesus is talking about our need for an ongoing, active awareness of our dependence upon God, an ongoing conviction of our inability. Yes, we've been made alive in Jesus, but our lives are completely dependent upon Jesus still. He is all our sustenance. Cut us off from Christ and we're done. And in another place, Jesus says it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, how do we practically, how do we practically grow in humility? How do we try to become more like a child? How do we grow in this kind of humility? Well, I want to suggest a little daily exercise for you. Uh, the Bible tells us in multiple places, switching the metaphor a little bit here, that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe ourselves with humility. Colossians 3, verse 12 says, put on humility. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are to clothe ourselves with humility. And this is not just some nice way the Bible has of talking about humility. God is teaching us something here. Clothing is a daily need. Every day we need to put on clothes. Right? At least I hope that's a daily need for you. I think we all acknowledge that. I've had little kids who wanted to buck against that, but clothing is a daily need. you got to learn that. It's a daily necessity. It's a daily exercise. Part of getting ready for the day is getting clothed for the day. And in the kingdom of heaven, we have a similar need, a similar daily necessity and daily exercise, that of clothing ourselves with humility, as opposed to our natural routine to gradually, as we make our way through the day, clothe ourselves with self-reliance. Instead, we need to clothe ourselves with humility. So how do we do that? Well, a few recommendations. First, begin the day acknowledging your need on God. Begin the day acknowledging your need for God. I'm talking about the first thing in the morning. When you get up, alarm goes off, or, or maybe while your coffee is brewing, just a simple prayer. God, I'm up, and I need you today. God, I'm up and going, and I need you today, just like I needed you yesterday. Lord, help me live with that consciousness so that my first impulse is you all day today. Make that an early part of your day. Second, start your day with Scripture. Start your day with Scripture. 
not just to learn something new, not just to study a passage and learn something new about it, but to remind yourself of God's greatness, of your need, and of His readiness to provide you through Christ. I, I had, that's how I teach my kids to read the Bible. When you read the Bible, ask yourself three questions. What does it teach you about God? What does it teach you you need to confess? And then, what does it teach you that God wants you to go and do? How is He going to provide for you to go do that? Simple. And you can't read a page of the Bible, Old Testament included, but especially the New Testament, and not see God's willingness and readiness to provide everything you need through Christ. This is how we need to read our Bible. A third thing, I forgot to put this on your overhead, all throughout the day, preach the gospel to yourself. All throughout the day, preach the gospel to yourself. Every good thing that happens to you, you should say, I don't deserve that. That is a gift bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every bad thing that happens to you, you should be able to say, that should be a lot worse because I deserve hell, but I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every criticism that comes your way, you should be able to say, well, if only they could see what the cross says about me because it said a lot worse. Praise God, I'm saved by Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day, and at the end of the day, if you evaluate your day and you realize you haven't preached the gospel to yourself, well, then you realize you have an opportunity right there. Lord, I must have been living in self-reliance today. Please forgive me. And thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes me of all my sin. Fourth, as you encounter burdens and cares throughout your day, continually cast them on the Lord. Where there is worry and anxiety, there is pride of self-reliance. Where there is worry and anxiety, there is the pride of self-reliance. And so we need to clothe ourselves with the humility of continually casting our cares on God. It's like we sang earlier, I lay it all, I lay it all on Jesus. Fifth, all throughout, but maybe especially at the end of the day, if you want to keep the clothing metaphor, like putting on your pajamas, maybe at the end of the day, clothe yourself with the humility of gratitude. Thankfulness acknowledges every gift is from God. Every good thing is from God. So we should be thankful for the big and the small. Gratitude is a garment of humility that we should shroud ourselves in. And then sixth and finally, I just added this one this morning, yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Yield to the leading of the Spirit throughout your day, all day, beginning your day and throughout the day. You can go study this in Galatians chapter 5. We are to be led by the Spirit. And so we need to cultivate a disposition where we're listening to the Spirit's urgings, promptings, words. Because we are not in control. We are not our own. What was it Alyssa said earlier? Christianity is not negotiated. We're listening to the leading of our Lord. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those most dependent upon God. He is our good and loving Father. Jesus is our sure and steady Savior. The Spirit is our strong and mighty power. The humble are those who know they need Him. All day, every day, no days off. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So I just want to close, Covenant of Grace. Let me invite you to imagine the great treasure trove of grace that will be poured upon your life as you turn from pride and put on humility. 
Become like a child. God wants to bless you. God wants to give you grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, parents, just imagine all the grace God wants to pour into your family through your humility. And covenant of grace, imagine all the grace God wants to pour into our community through our humility. Imagine the showers of spiritual revivals or the commissioning of missionaries to far-off places He might bring through us if we avail ourselves of the grace that comes through humility. This is ours in Christ Jesus. It has been bought for us. It is ours to have. And so I close quoting to you Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus became a child. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up in Christ's kingdom is by going down. Jesus taught us that, and that's the way we go as disciples in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, your word is a good word for us this morning, Lord. It does surgery on our souls. It's alive and active. And so, Lord, we thank you for this good work because though you are cutting out on us, cutting at us, Lord, what you are doing is cutting out pride and replacing it with grace. God, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. So wherever we've been stuck in pride, today is a part of you helping us get unstuck by your grace. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn from our pride, turn from our sin, cast ourselves on Jesus and walk in the humility that you have purchased for us. And as we do, may grace flow like a river into our lives and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand.